And now I'd like to invite Mark up. He's going to talk to us about, uh, take us through Second or First Timothy chapter two. Mark. Thanks, Mike. Um, in your uh, brochure at the very opening pages, there we gave some definitions. Um, egalitarianism, complementarianism, these are terms that describe uh, the kind of two separate views on uh, the topic we're dealing with today. Egalitarian teaches uh, not only that uh, all people are equal before God in their push personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and the society. Complementarianism teaches that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles in life and in the church. Both positions affirm the absolute equality of men and women in their being, their personhood, dignity, and worth, but differ when it comes to whether they are distinct God-given roles and functions associated with each gender, and especially as it pertains to the home and to the church. So obviously, we teach here and have, since the beginning of this church, complementarianism, which is, uh, I would say, probably the historic uh, evangelical position. Um, but egalitarianism is increasingly becoming um, um, uh, more widespread. And um, thus today, we've been asked to, well, where, what is the biblical basis of uh, this complementarian position? Uh, what does the Bible have to say? And what have the elders concluded in our study on this? And so that's why we want to present this again um, to you. Um, we believe that, as John has laid out, there are um, biblical foundations in creation for that understanding of role differences, uh, and they have um, value in the home, uh, in the church, and society. Uh, but as Mike has just shared, there is also something supernatural in, in, the, in the unseen realm of value of understanding these roles. Um, doing Bible study is hard work, and it's difficult to get into the phrases God communicated uh, in His Word um, through verbs and nouns and participles. He communicated to those original authors that were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, and what they wrote down was, was correct. It was without error. The, the problem comes when we who, uh, who are sinful and uh, do not speak ex cathedra, uh, look at those words and nouns and participles and uh, what was originally written and try to understand it. But we are sinners, and so we have to prayerfully and humbly come before God and say, what does your word say? Um, so as we continue laying this foundation, uh, I want us to move into the New Testament realm. And there are some key passages related as we've shared already, that are very pertinent to this idea of roles within the home and within the church. And one of those key passages is 1 Timothy 2. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women to make a claim to God in this. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, and I do, but I do not allow a woman to teach 
or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but it was the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But the woman will be preserved or saved through the bearing of children if they continue in the faith and love and sanctity and with self-restraint. Obviously, verse 11 and 12 um, are pertinent to our discussion and uh, are also difficult. Um, And if you just looked at verse 11 and 12, you would have to conclude, well, Paul's prohibiting something, but what is it that he is prohibiting? What is um, he saying here? And we have to, I think, also understand the overall context of, uh, of this First Timothy passage. Why was Paul writing First Timothy? Well, he tells us in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing so that you know how you, can, you are to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. How to conduct ourselves in the household of God. So Paul goes on and he explains some of those instructions about how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. He talks about uh, we are to uh, guard against uh, uh, false doctrine in chapter 1, or uh, what's the proper uh, understanding of church leadership, and he lays that out in chapters 3 and 5, or how uh, family relationships in the church, how we treat one another, it's chapter 5 and then chapter 6, just general directives to Timothy uh, as he shepherds the church in Ephesus, he writes, Some of Paul's instructions focused upon the gathering of the church and the proper decorum when worshipers meet together, and that's what this passage is referring to in chapters uh, 2, verses 8 through 15. So if we look at this a little bit more deeply, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 says, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, And there's that little phrase, I want men in every place. It's a phrase that indicates Paul is concerned about when the church is gathered. In every place when the church is gathered, when it meets to worship, men are to lift up holy hands. And the word that he uses for for men there uh, is the word, is a Greek word, aner. And um, we'll see that uh, plays uh, in the next couple of verses. Um, So he wants proper decorum. Men, uh, lift up holy hands and do it without wrath and dissension. Uh, There was probably something going on there that uh, we may not know the specifics of, but uh, um, the prayer meetings uh, and the worship gatherings probably weren't uh, always uh, friendly friendly meetings. Verse 9 and 10 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Paul, again, his directive to women is regarding their attitudes. He directs them to dress properly, not ostentatiously, to to draw attention to themselves, but modestly, and make their claim of godliness through their good works. Um, Historians... uh, interesting kind of sideline. In the first century, there's evidence and archaeological evidence that things like hairstyles were um, of prominent women in ancient Rome, specifically emperor's wives, set the trends. And uh, we have evidence uh, like in Ephesus where Timothy was writing to the church in Ephesus. These things were um, kind of the trends of the day were taking place, uh, captured in that term braided hair. 
Um, and Paul is simply saying, don't follow, don't make your claims to, to um, your, 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 um, who you are, your identity, by the trends of the day. Make it by the heart. Um, now, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12, it says, A woman must quietly, or the King James says, in silence receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This is kind of ground zero in the women's role issues here. In verse 11, first of all, you notice that there is a change uh, from the plural in verse 9 and 10. Women are to dress this way to a singular in verse 11. A woman must quietly receive in, um, instruction. Um, now, some would say, well, there must have been a problem in the church at Ephesus. So now, moving from the general statement, he's going to focus on a particular issue and probably a particular woman. Um, the grammar does not support that. This is, he's speaking of women generically. This is what's called, it's a noun that's called an anarthrous noun. There's no article in front of it. If there was an article in front of it, then you could say, yeah, there is a particular woman in mind. Down in verse 14, he actually uses the word woman and puts an article in front of it in verse uh, 14 because he has a, a particular woman in mind. He's referring to, to Eve in that context, but here not. So he's referring, making a, a statement, a generic statement. Furthermore, the terms that are, are used here, again, man, aner, woman is the word gune. Although these terms man, woman, aner, gune, are the same words that can be applied or translated husband and wife, it is important to understand that the context determines meaning. And in this context, Paul has been talking about men in general and women in general. Men are to lift up holy hands. Women are to adorn themselves. And nowhere in the context is there a shift to husbands and wives. Now, again, egalitarians would say, um, well, this passage refers only to um, within the church, uh, a wife should respect her husband and certainly not uh, be in a domineering way over her husband. Uh, but the context is not talking about husband and wife relationships. It's talking about the generic role of men and women in the church. Now, some writers will uh, say, well, it's very similar. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, John alluded to that, that passage, which clearly speaks to husbands and wives. And so some would say, well, that's how we should understand 1 Timothy 2. We should interpret these passages in light of just husband and wife relationships and not generally within the church. However, the key hermeneutical principle is that the immediate context determines the meaning, and the context of 1 Timothy shows us that Paul is referring generically to men and to women. It seems improbable that Paul would insert a teaching on husband and wives in the midst of his teaching of, of the worship order when the church gathered. Furthermore, despite some parallels with 1, Timothy, 1 Peter 3, there are still clear differences. The context of 1 Peter tells us that the aner and the gune, the husband and wife, um, that is the, the context. He's talking about the marriage relationship. But the context, again, in 1 Timothy 2 is referring generically to men and women in the church. If one insists he's taking or talking about the husbands and wives in uh, verse 11 and 12, then why isn't Paul talking about husband and wives of lifting up holy hands and dressing appropriately? Again, the point is he's speaking generically 
about the roles of men and women. And women are to be, it says, receive the instruction quietly. It's the same word that is used in verse 2 of that chapter, which means to lead a quiet or tranquil life. It refers to a quiet demeanor and a spirit that is peaceable instead of argumentative. Second of all, it says that women should learn in submission. Again, this speaks to a woman's demeanor, a general attitude toward the teaching of God's Word when the church is gathered. Now, again, some egalitarians would say, well, that word is used, submissiveness, and over in Ephesians about the marriage relationship. So it must mean the marriage relationship here. No, again, context determines meaning. Paul is calling upon women to have a respectful and accepting attitude as the word is being taught in the church. Now, certainly this should also be the attitude of any man sitting under the teaching of God's word as well. But there was something happening in the early church that required Paul to specifically call out women and direct them to learn quietly and submissively. And by the way, notice that women are not hindered to learn the word. This verse doesn't prohibit learning theology and truth, only that disruptive or unsubmissive attitude while they are learning. Now, verse 12 specifically we have to focus on. Because again, I really think this is the, the kind of ground zero point in this whole discussion. Some believe the prohibition here in verse 12 uh, was only directed at the particular church that Timothy uh, was pastoring. I don't allow a woman to teach or exert authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And because that doesn't really fit our cultural day, um, certainly Paul just had something involved there with the Ephesian church, and it doesn't apply to us today. Now, in just a moment, Don Denharto will get up and share verses 13 and 14, how he ties it back to what John Morrison just taught in the book of Genesis. So it's, it's, it, is, uh, it, it transcends um, um, this, this application. It transcends the, the situation back in the first century. It is timeless. Now, the key to understanding this verse centers on the two infinitives that are connected together by a conjunction. I'm going to get a little technical here. Those two infinitives, if you look at your text, are the infinitives to teach and to exert authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exert authority over a man. Now, there are a couple of key syntactical and, and lexical uh, issues in that really small phrase that are really crucial to understand if we're going to interpret this phrase correctly. First of all, let me share the lexical issues. The Greek word for the second um, infinitive is a, is a Greek word, authentao. Now, some writers, egalitarian writers, insist that this word has a negative, a negative connotation to it, so that it should be translated to domineer over a man. I do not, what, and, and so the interpretation is what Paul is, de, is denying is for a woman to teach in a domineering spirit over a man. Not that they can't teach men, but they just can't do it in a domineering way. And so, uh, is that what the word means? Granted, this word, authenteo, is a very rare word used only here in the New Testament, and it's only found maybe seven, eight times prior to the 4th century A.D., so we don't have a whole lot to go on here. Um, there is about 114 uh, uses of the term in extent Greek literature um, beyond that, um, but not much evidence to go on. Scholars believe that this word, authenteo, comes from a, a, a noun, authentes, but 
here's the problem when you do this lexical work. There are two different meanings for that noun form, authentase. Just like I can throw out the word cool. Well, I might mean, gee, he, she's sure, uh, she's a cool person, or it's, it's a bit cool in here. Authentase, as they dug up and read these ancient Greek literature, they found that there was a couple of different meanings for authentase. One of the meanings is murderer. That's a negative connotation. The other is a more neutral term, master. Murderer is attested to 24 times, but it's attested to 24 times in what's called Attic Greek, which comes from the 4th or 5th or 4th century B.C., after that, the interesting thing is this, the meaning of this term of murder is rare, and it predominantly means more the neutral master. There are 30 other cases of this use of this noun up until A.D. 312, and in each of these cases, the meaning is not in a negative connotation. Again, that's the noun form. We're looking at the verbal form used only one time in the in the New Testament, and only seven or eight times before the fourth century, this verbal form, authenteo, overwhelmingly the majority of the use of the hundred sometimes after that, A.D. through 12, is not in the negative, it's in the more neutral master. Now, egalitarians will go back to the ancient, more ancient language, the fourth or fifth century B.C., and pick up that concept of murder, the negative, and now they're applying it into the first century and saying, well, it was used that way here, and yet proper word study and the scholars have shown that negative connotation slipped away and the more neutral or positive connotation is used. And so to understand authentic in a negative way does not seem to fit the overall lexical evidence. Um, then I want to focus on the little coordinating conjunction um, which is this little word, ude, ude. The conjunction ude, cor, uh, what's called a coordinating conjunction, its meaning in its normal use does not join two separate ideas into a single idea, but joins two separate concepts that retain their distinctiveness. And yet those ideas, two of them separate, can convey a larger overall idea. Okay, what's that mean? Paul's intent is not to pro prohibit teaching authoritatively or teaching in a domineering way where those two infinitives are brought together to try to convey one concept. The Greek language calls it a hindiades. Two ideas brought together to convey one thought. And egalitarians will use that phrase and say, no, those two words are brought together in one Con, uh, one, uh, to convey one idea, women are prohibited to not to do domineering teaching over. But these are two distinct infinitives that are joined by a, cor, a coordinating uh, uh, conjunction, ude, and um, the, the, the Greek pattern of syntax is that when two infinitives are connected with this coordinated conjunction, ude, they share the same force Either both of the terms are positive or both of the terms are negative. Both to teach or to exercise authority have to therefore be either negative or positive because the, the, the nature of Greek syntax. Now, if we look at um, how the word to teach is used in the pastoral epistles, it's used always in a positive way. T 
teaching is good. To teach is good. And the only time there's a negative uh, part to it is when um, there's further elucidation in the context, teaching false doctrine, teaching inappropriately. That's not what we have here. So to teach is positive. I don't allow a woman to teach. And therefore, by the Greek syntax and construction with ude, a a coordinating conjunction, the next infinitive, or to exert authority over a man, must also not be in a negative way that is a dominating uh, way or an inappropriate way, but it is also a neutral or positive thing. Exercising authority can be good. Parents need to do it. Authorities need to do it. And Paul is saying within the church, authority also has to be exercised. He's just saying women are not to be in positions where they teach or exert authority over men in that context. Um, So Paul is not talking about false or improper teaching or false or improper authority as if he is writing against women who teach false doctrine or exercise authority in a domineering fashion. Again, the syntax and the lexical evidence won't permit that. And in fact, all major Bible translations down through the years don't put that negative spin on this phrase. Um, Now, we can get more into the particular details of those things and the research on that. I simply want to convey this truth. Given the syntactical and lexical evidence, I believe one must only conclude that Paul is instructing, that what he's instructing, that is when the church gathers, when you come into that place, when you gather for worship, Paul's instructions in this verse seems to indicate Women are not to be teachers or spiritual authorities over men, but are to exhibit an attitude in learning God's Word when the church is formally gathered of a submissive and quiet spirit. Now, again, down through, um, say, the last 56 years, when people have read these verses, it's like, can we just cut these verses out? (laughs) Because I don't like what it says there. And 56 years ago, a more liberal uh, wing of, of feminism within the church did just that. They said, you know, Paul was just blatantly wrong. He was a, he was a, um, you know, he was a bigot, and they discarded that. When I was going to seminary uh, and 40-some years ago, those were the writers that we were interacting with. Uh, as of late, um, people in the more evangelical or conservative realm are slipping more towards the egalitarian position and they're saying, oh, we don't necessarily like what that verse is saying. It's not necessarily meshing with our culture. There must be something in the Greek language that we're missing, and so they're attempting to take these phrases and these words and say, well, it really is not meaning what it is saying, and that is dangerous. And when you look at the Greek and the, the lexical evidence and the syntactical evidence, you just got to conclude that this is exactly what Paul is saying. Now, I'm going to invite Don Denhartog up because he's going to continue with that passage. And you look at verses 13 and 14, and the Apostle Paul is going to give some reasons why he concluded that. And it doesn't have to do with what was going on in Ephesus. It has something to do with what John was talking about in Genesis. So, Don.